Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Crime Story Podcast with Carrie Antholis, where stories of crime and justice are told. On today's podcast, Chris Terracone reads his story, Family, Friends, and Pets, Emotional Storytelling in the Trial of Robert Durst, which you can find in written form at crimestory.com. Family, Friends, and Pets, Emotional Storytelling in the Trial of Robert Durst by Chris Terracone. The prosecution in the murder trial of Robert Durst is trying to convince the jury beyond a reasonable doubt that Durst killed his longtime friend, Susan Berman, as well as his Galveston neighbor, Morris Black, in order to cover up his alleged murder of his ex-wife, Kathy. Lead prosecutor John Lewin and his team are not only preparing the members of that panel to accept this as the most compelling and logical narrative, but also want the jurors to feel the pain and cruelty they say Durst inflicted on those closest to him, and to viscerally understand the real-life consequences of his misanthropy. When Deputy DA Habib Balian calls Virginia McKeon to the stand, she adds to this compilation of personal testimony that the prosecution has woven together in a series of striking, richly specific, and emotional narratives in the Durst saga. Crime Story has already covered a number of those narratives, Catherine Shawcutter humanized her otherwise eccentric neighbor, Susan Berman, by talking about Berman's devotion to her dogs. Shawcutter also relayed how she came to share that affection, eventually adopting one of the dogs, Lulu, after Berman's death. Then there was Anne Doyle, who offered that she had decided to travel halfway around the world amid a mushrooming pandemic in order to speak to the trauma that her friend Kathy Durst had suffered at the hands of Robert. Another friend, Marion Watlington, waited 40 years to be able to relate the marital horrors that Kathy shared with her. She also shared Kathy's plea with the jury, don't let the bastard get away with it. Of course, Thomas Durst, Robert's own brother, provided an explosive testimony describing the trauma-inducing passion of his brother's cruel and abusive behavior. And Kathy's brother, Jim, the eldest of the five McCormick siblings, testified of his love for his baby sister and the agony of helplessly witnessing her husband physically abuse her in the McCormick family home. Virginia McKeon's testimony is the last of these emotional narratives to be heard in Judge Wyndham's courtroom, before the trial is suspended due to the COVID-19 pandemic. For McKeon, the courtroom is a memory box of complex emotions that brings her long-lost sister, Kathy Durst, back to life, but in the worst imaginable way. Um, what was it like being a McCormick growing up? Um, I think it was great. We had, I, I, when I look back, we had a, it was a regular, um, happy, middle-class family. And then my dad went to work, and my mom was able to be home with us, you know, to raise us. So he had a really a nice, I felt a nice time, you know, 
much we played and um, you know we were close as we can be with you know siblings and um, yeah just it was a nice family. Early on in his questioning, Balian uses humor to draw emotion out of his witness. We saw this when he guided Sandra Garfield to describe how Susan Berman's dog, the lovable but incorrigible Lulu, ripped up her carpet. Here, he asks McCann to describe the McCormick family home. Your physical proximity to each other growing up. Um, how big was the house you guys grew up in? Uh, we had, it was a three-bedroom house. It was a nice house. You know, well, we were in Brooklyn until I was four, so I don't really remember you know, a whole lot about there, but... When we moved to Hollis, it was a nice house, you know, three bedrooms. We had, um, Jim had one room, and my parents, and then there were four, the four girls were in one room. Four we, girls shared one room, and Jim had his own room? <laughs> that doesn't seem right. How many bathrooms were there? One. No. Well, actually, on that house, there was actually a half bath. I forgot about that. But, uh, yeah, just one. But at that time, I don't know, it wasn't a major issue that I recall anyway. Okay. You know, some other bedrooms where you, you know, we only had two closets. But that was enough to, I guess. Okay. As I said, we were happy. Under Balian's guidance, McKean describes her family as middle-class, fun-loving people who never seem to take life too seriously, people with whom anyone can empathize. In showcasing for the jury the relatability of Kathy and her family, the prosecution also seeks to alienate them from Robert Durst. What types of things growing up uh, would you guys do together as a family? Um, with our relatives didn't live too, too far, you know, and so we'd get together for Sunday dinners and, um, you know, just outings, you know, to go. It was, and it was a big thing. It was, you weren't as mobile as you are today, so, you know, to go to, like, to a park or a picnic or something was really a treat. So we'd do things like that with the relatives and our neighbors, you know, just, yeah, that type of thing. And then um, we were very lucky, like, in the summertime, we got to go up to the lake. My grandma had a... Um, cabin, two cabins up um, in, in the Poconos, and uh, so we got to go up there for, you know, at least usually a month during the summer, which was really a treat. How close was Kathy to your mother? I th well, I think very close. That was her, that was my mom's baby, so I, you know, she was a baby, and so I think she was very close, definitely. What was Kathy like growing up? Okay, she was six years younger than I was, so, you know, we had, we were kind of in little, not different girls, but, you know, I was older and stuff, but, you know, she was my baby sister, and she was, you know, I, I can't remember any uh, major issues or, you know, that type of thing. We played and... What was um, her personality? Her, well, her personality, she was, um, Kathy, she just was special. It was something about her that, um... She, she was really intelligent, you know, she was bright, bright gal, and she liked to try things and do things, and, um, and, and fun to be with, you know, she was, she was lots of fun to be with, um, you know, she liked it, she, and we can remember, like, she, um, she wanted to play uh, the guitar, so she got a guitar, and she, she would, you know, she would try things, she liked to surf, um, on the beach, um, she would take, uh, with my brother, and they'd surf down at Jones Beach and that area. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Balian then shows the courtroom an old photo of the McCormick family, gathered together, carefree and joyful. It's a photograph. People are smiling. People look happy, but people generally smile for a photograph. But what I want to ask you is, <clears throat> these photographs and the smiles you see, are these for a camera, or is this representative of what your family was like when they were young? That's the way we were. That's the way we are. We're easy smilers. We all, we all, when we smile, we tend to, I think we kind of look a lot. By putting the jury in the shoes of the McCormicks, Balian has them in the perfect headspace for what comes next. Our alleged killer, Robert Durst, entering the family. Would you see her and Robert Durst together in the beginning of their marriage? Yeah, oh sure. Did she, how did they seem? Um, they seem fine. They seem they, they seemed happy. I mean, you know, he was my sister's husband, so you know, they they seemed okay. I don't know. I, I can't. Did you welcome him into the family? Oh sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's that's where they are. Robert Durst entered Kathy's family like a square peg in a round hole. On the one hand, we've heard about the vast amount of love within the McCormick clan. On the other, we have a man whose own brother, Thomas Durst, just testified against him, explaining that his family stopped keeping touch decades ago. Did um, their relationship appear to you from the time that you saw her to change over time with Robert Durst? Um... Yeah, she, I mean, she was really happy. She was in love. You know, she was really happy when she first married. I know she was. And then gradually, she, I think she wanted more. She wanted to, you know, to, to accomplish more, I think. I think this is what happened with Kathy. She wanted to accomplish more. And so, you know, she wanted to go to nursing school. And that seemed to change. That seemed to alter a little bit. Balian then elicits from McKeon the sweet but somber memory of her final interaction with her sister. Your sister disappeared on January 31st, 1982, right? Is that you? Yes. When's the last time you spoke with her prior to that? Day? It was sometime in January, a couple of weeks before she um, was killed. And... Um, she, uh, she called me, or I called, I, I really, those, uh, it's kind of fuzzy, um, but we're on the phone, like, for three hours, and I can, I can still remember, the, physically, it was, I was sitting on the floor, we had just sat in the carpet, and there was no furniture, so I was sitting on the floor talking to her, for, like, three hours, just talking. Excuse me. Uh, I didn't want to interrupt her. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yes? Strike the word kill. I was not responsible. Just a moment. As McKeon utters the word killed, we are brought back to the reality that this is a murder trial. The defense objects to her use of the word, and while Judge Wyndham sustains the objection, Balian digs deeper into the past to fully realize the emotional significance of that utterance. Have you seen Kathy since January 31st of 1982? Has she attended any of these Halloween celebrations since that day? Did you continue to have them? As much as we could, yes. Did she attend any of the milestones in your kids' lives over the years? If she was alive, would she have been there for your children during their important times in their life? Oh, sure, yes. If Kathy were alive, would she have attended your mother's funeral? Oh, gosh, yes. 
if Kathy were alive, would she have attended your birthdays, or called you on your birthdays, or wrote you a letter on your birthday throughout the year? Oh, I'm sure she would. If Kathy were alive, would she have reached out and had some form of communication, no matter what it was, throughout the years, to let you know, hey, I'm okay and I'm still out here? Yes, I, I have no doubt. Do you have any doubt in your mind that your sister is dead? McKeon's voice is shaky as Balian comforts her through his final questions, and as Dick DeGaren rises to cross-examine this witness, feelings of sadness, longing, and fear hang in the air. Robert Durst's defense team so far seems to be deploying a strategy, at least in their opening statement and their cross-examinations, of trying to pick apart details of each of these witnesses' emotional narratives. In Durst's previous murder trial, in Texas for the killing of Morris Black, Dick DeGaren, Chip Lewis, and others presented to the jury what DeGaren called a, quote, poor little rich boy narrative. Durst, they explained, had suffered the terrible trauma of not only witnessing his mother's suicide as a child, but also growing up with an emotionally abusive father. And though Durst had admitted to dismembering Morris Black, his lawyers believed that a carefully crafted, sympathetic narrative could nudge the jury toward empathy for their client. In that context, they trusted that the jury would be more inclined to believe that Durst killed Black, not with malice, but in self-defense. How exactly the defense counters the prosecution's representation of Durst as a cruel and ruthless misanthrope remains to be seen. But in the cross-examination of Virginia McKeon, DeGaren only seeks to make one point. You were raised uh, basically on East Coast, uh, Brooklyn, Long Island. I was born in Brooklyn and I grew up on Long Island, yeah. Queens, and then Mason. Um, would you agree with me that uh, folks that are raised uh, on the East Coast, Brooklyn, Long Island, New York City, have a rather distinctive accent? Yes. <laughs> now, see, I don't think I have I, an accent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy talked that way too, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. Um, are you familiar with the West Coast accent? Um, I don't, no, I, I guess I'm not. I don't think of them having an accent, I guess, maybe. But not like the yes and the... Yeah, you know, the Southern Boston accents or, or the Boston accent. Boston. You get a real... Um, but, yeah, I don't think of the West Coast as much as the next And that's the way Kathy talked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for coming all this way. That's all I have. With that, DeGaren is done. It seems the defense cannot use McKeon's testimony to paint Durst as a, quote, poor little rich boy, or elicit any kind of empathy from the jury. Instead, DeGaren tries to use McKeon to counter the prosecution's allegation that it was Susan Berman pretending to be a sick Kathy Durst who called the dean of the Albert Einstein Medical School to cover up her disappearance the day after Robert Durst killed her. Berman's motive, according to the prosecutors, was to give her friend Robert an alibi. Presumably, the defense will ultimately ask the jury to infer that Virginia McKeon's accent was similar to her sister's, and that if it was Susan Berman who called the school, pretending to be Kathy, surely the dean would have recognized that Berman sounded nothing like Kathy Durst. 
The defense has done nothing so far to rebut effectively the emotional testimonies that collectively depict Robert Durst as a cold and calculating man, capable of pathological cruelty. This leads us to a key question that will be at the heart of the Durst trial when it resumes. Can the defense find an effective counter-narrative that will cast doubt in the jurors' minds of Robert Durst's capacity to commit these three murders? That was Family, Friends, and Pets, Emotional Storytelling in the Trial of Robert Durst by Chris Tarico. For more storytelling news and narrative analysis in the world of crime and justice, head on over to crimestory.com. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next Crime Story podcast. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.